The passage our teaching is based on this morning is Deuteronomy 5, verses 1 to 5. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. We're looking at the fifth chapter, and we'll have the first five verses. No theme there intended, but just interesting. And we're beginning a new series this morning on the Ten Commandments. So we've been tracking through the life of Moses. We've come to Exodus 20, uh, although we're looking at this, uh, the other place in the Old Testament where the Ten Commandments are given this morning. And we're going to explore that for the spring series. And a few months ago, I don't know if you saw this on the news, there was the, uh, I think it was live when I was watching it, footage at nighttime, of the contractors that were hired to take the Ten Commandment model, monument off the state capitol grounds. And they were showing these poor guys who were hired to do this like as if they were thieves, you know. And it was done at night because even though the law was passed to take them off, they just felt like there'd be retribution and outcry, maybe marching or unwanted political fallout. And I remember watching that, and maybe a lot of you, and it creates tension, I think, for Christians. Should we be angry? Is it realistic for the government to follow the Ten Commandments? There's a lot of questions about the law, and especially for Christians. What is the role of the law for the Christian life? So that's really what this series will seek to define as we look at the Ten Commandments. And this morning we're going to do basically an introduction or an overview. So if you'll look at your scripture, verses Deuteronomy verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, which is also Sinai, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. He did make a covenant with their forefathers. It's not a different covenant, it's a furthering of the covenant. But Moses' point is, you guys, this is for you today. That's his main point there. The Lord spoke, verse 5, with you in the face-to-face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, and actually I'm sorry, we were also looking at verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is the prologue there, verse 6 of the Ten Commandments. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you came to Sinai, and that you came down close to your people and you gave this law of freedom that is so at the same time terrifying. And Jesus, we praise you that you came not to abolish this law, but to fulfill it. That we may actually see this law of liberty. And Holy Spirit, we praise you that you've come into our hearts to write the law on our hearts. That as Christians, we no longer need to be threatened by the law, but we can see the beauty. I pray, Lord, this morning that we would all maybe step a little bit closer in understanding, if not a lot closer, in understanding the actual beauty in the law that you've given us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. When I uh, was in college, I spent a summer in Illinois, and the area I spent this summer in had a nuclear reactor, which I was not used to seeing, because it was pretty far away, but you could see the three mounds and the steam coming off. And all I could think of was, Three Mile Island or Chernobyl. And yet for this group of people, 
this nuclear reactor provided all their power and energy as well as jobs, or many of their jobs. And I was just thinking about the law like this nuclear energy. It may not be a great metaphor, but when used properly, it's beautiful. It provides power and energy and resources. Nuclear energy does. But when nuclear energy is not used well, i.e., if it's a bomb, it destroys. Or if the reactor has a problem like the, is it the Fujima, am I saying that right, in Japan, leaking into the ocean, radiation's coming out, it can destroy, it can deform. And so the law, too, like this, it can change you or it can deform you depending on your view of it, depending on how you use it. And so what we want to see is that for Christians, God has given to us as his children the law to make us whole, to make us complete, to restore us. And there is freedom in the law. So, it's a tall order to, get, to prove that point to you. I know many of us probably wonder, how do you use the law? I think all of us do. So we're going to dive into that this morning. And how is it freeing? So the three points... What is the law? What does it do? And how do we use it? And to begin with, what is the law? When I got to seminary, and maybe even before, I would hear that word thrown around a lot. Of course, I knew what the Ten Commandments were and are, but I didn't understand what, what, what do you mean by law? That word gets thrown around, morally speaking, a lot. So this first point will be the shortest point, but just a quick understanding. We all know what law means. We know what speeding laws and gun laws, et cetera, et cetera. But morally speaking, where does the law come from? And so the way, the way you want to conceive of it, the Bible conceives of it, is you have the Ten Commandments. They're kind of the center, right? But leading into the Ten Commandments, we have what we find in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And then, of course, Jesus was asked, what is the law? Define it. And he said, the law is this, quoting Deuteronomy 6, but it's also love your neighbor as yourself. And, and for Jesus, he's saying, that's the law, and it's one thing. You can't, I love my neighbor well. I'm into loving neighbors. I'm a social guy. I'm not really sure about God. That's impossible, according to the law. Or, I love God. I'm really into God. I'm really religious. I'm not sure about people. I don't really treat them well. That's not possible. It's both and. And then all the Ten Commandments come out of that law. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. And then as one of my professors has said, the rest of the law is simply commentary to the Ten Commandments. So for example, somewhere in the Old Testament, there's this law that says, uh, build a parapet around your roof. And that just sounds weird. Why would I have to do that? A parapet's a small wall. I don't want to put a wall on my roof. See, that's why the Old Testament makes no sense, right? What's going on is in that time, roofs were flat. Guests would often sleep on your roof. It was a nice climate. They could sleep outside. But if you don't have a wall, they may roll off and fall to their doom. So God is saying part of not murdering is actually loving your neighbor this way. Modern times, it would be don't text while you drive. A, a woman was recently charged with hitting a bicyclist, and it's vehicular manslaughter. And it's one of those moments where you're like, I could have been that person. But she chose to text while she drove on a road with bicyclists. And now she has been charged with vehicular manslaughter. So she was not loving her neighbor well. I'm not making, this is horrible. And yet, that's the Ten Commandments played out in our modern times. So that's kind of the civil use of the law. But what about the moral use? So we're moving into point number two. What does the law do morally? More particularly, how does it set you free? Are any of you skeptical? 
how is Ryan going to make the law sound crazy? Right? Well, let's see if we can. First of all, the law reveals how we're to live. And if you look at our passage in, in both Exodus 20 and, and Deuteronomy 5, when God introduced the law, he says, I'm your God, I brought you out of slavery. And so what he's saying by implication is, if you don't have law, you'll slip right back into slavery. In fact, with, with Egypt, or with Israel, you find them constantly throughout this time of Exodus wanting to go back to Egypt. The second something went a little wrong, we could go back and have all the meat we wanted and live in slavery. Patty Hearst is a very famous figure from the 19, I believe it was the 70s. She was kidnapped. Uh, and, and what was strange about her, she was a, a very wealthy heiress, kidnapped, but she began to be enamored by her captors to the point of actually liking them and wanting to remain with them. And that shocked those that sought to rescue her. And I think we're like that. When we have rescue available, if we're honest with ourselves, often we want to go back into slavery. But what the law is doing is it's God saying, I'm here to set you free. So the first thing we're going to look under this point is it's, it's an operating manual of freedom. Okay, Write that down in your notes if you take notes. The law is the operating manual of freedom. God says, I brought you out of slavery. Um, in Galatians 5, Paul says, you've been set free for freedom's sake. Don't go back in to the prison. Well, how does that look presently? Um, imagine you're standing there watching a bird soar through the sky. That bird looks free, right? Imagine now you climb to the top of a tree and you jump off because you want to feel the freedom of that bird. What's going to happen? It's going to be a long drop. It's going to hurt at the very end. Because we can't have the freedom that bird has. That bird is free because it's operating according to its design. Now, if you invited that bird to join you at poker night, it would not do well. You might be really good bowling or poker playing or whatever. Okay, that's a dumb example. Free Willy. Imagine Free Willy. You're going to free this whale who's in captivity. So you take the whale out and throw it on dry land thinking you've done it a major favor. Again, it's not freedom. There's only freedom when we're operating according to the way we're designed. And the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and, and the commentary from following from them, the way they apply to our lives, is God's way of saying, here's how you're supposed to be. It, it's designed to show you what freedom might look like. Now, we get this in other areas of life, which would bring us to, uh, it's not only freedom because it's an operating manual, but you have to obey it to find the freedom. So we're getting even worse. I've said the law is freedom. Now I'm telling you, you have to obey the law to find that freedom. But we find this in other areas of life. For example, physical things. Um, I was on Facebook. I saw that a, a classmate of mine just started the Whole30. It's like the, the, the strictest paleo diet you can find. You do it for 30 days. You eat nothing off this diet. And her joke was she showed a, a, a video of a girl screaming and she said, this is the reaction of my friends when I say we can't drink for 30 days. And so, you don't have to laugh. Actually, you do. Come on, give me a little. So this, but it's true. If you've ever gone on a strict diet, try telling somebody, I can't have, I can't have sugar. And they're like, what? What is that all about? You're, Keller says this way. You're, you're, um, you're refusing your will is what obedience means. It's when you tell, take your will and you say no. And everyone in here gets that physically. Whether you're an athlete or you're eating, trying to eat better, or you don't do either of those things, but you think you should. Right? Another one is financially. How many of you talk to people who've gone through Dave Ramsey? Maybe you've gone through Dave Ramsey. 
hey, what you do is you quit spending your money that you don't have. You restrict your will, and there's freedom in that. I'm not knocking any of this. This is true. Everyone in here would agree. Freedom health-wise, freedom financially, freedom in the physical realm comes through restriction. But morally, we all, we all kind of say, I should have total reign to do what I want. At least the non-Christian world would say it. But it applies morally as well. Restriction of will is important. So I'm tempted to worship multiple gods. I come to the Ten Commandments and it says worship one god. That's restrictive, isn't it? But there's freedom in that. So, not only is the law uh, freedom through the operating manual, through obedience, we're moving kind of quickly, and I'll I'll unpack more as we go, it's also never-ending. In other words, you'll never be able to fully reach the end of the law. Right? Remember the rich young ruler? What did he ask Jesus? He said, Rabbi, good, good teacher, how do I basically go to heaven? How do I have eternal life? And Jesus, of course, asks him why you call him good. Why did you call me good? And he doesn't know the answer. And then he says, have you followed the commandments? The ruler says, which ones? And he names the second half of the Ten Commandments. And he says, yes, I've followed all of those since childhood. So Jesus says, great. If that's true, he doesn't say it in these words. I'm paraphrasing. Then let's put, let's put that to the test. Why don't you sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, and follow me? That would be the easiest thing in the world to do if you had followed the law. If if you had actually loved your neighbor as yourself, and that was your chief motivation in everything you did, then the idea that there's a poor person who absolutely needs help, selling your possessions and helping them would be no issue. So for the rich young ruler, in his mind, the law was something you checked off. It wasn't this perpetual pursuit. Let me try to bring that together with the obedience. When I was in, in, at, the, at Oklahoma University, I had a ha- we lived in a house right across the street from the university, and the door was always unlocked, and people would just park there, and we would get to know these folks. And there was one guy that parked there, and his car was always there because he was a music, music major, and that, that music school was right across the street, and he played classical guitar. And I remember thinking, I actually went over and looked in the building. Some of you are music majors. It's a small room, soundproof, where he spent 8 to 12 hours every single day of his life. Prison. I mean, it was prison. And I'm just thinking, his car is always here. I'm out throwing the Frisbee, having a great time. And then one day, I asked him to play his classical guitar for me. And it was the most beautiful sound you've ever heard. Flawless. And what do we do? Oh, I would love to play the guitar like that. I would love the freedom of enjoying the ability to do what Matthew did earlier, but no offense, this guy was even a little better. And and he could just do it beautifully. I think he was playing like a classical song, like something from Beethoven, which is crazy to me. But he would tell you, you can have that ability, but there's a lot of sacrifice, right? So it's obedience to the sacrifice, right? The difficulty, the hardship. But he would also, he would never walk out one day and go, guess what? I finished guitar. I'm done. What do I do now? He, he, in his mind, I'm sure he would tell you even today, I'm not even halfway there. And it's been 20 years ago. Goodness gracious. Um, I'm old. So, you can't get to the end of the law. The law is freeing because there's no end point. And then finally it's freeing, and unfortunately when I say finally, I mean of point number two. Bear with me. 
Finally, it's freeing because it's also reaching into your heart. This is where legalism meets the reality of the law. A legalist does things outwardly. The law, and someone who's pursuing the law, wants inward change. Again, Deuteronomy 6, the very next chapter. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. How? Externally? No. In your heart, with your, in all of your soul, with all of your might. In other words, the affections of my, my life, my heart, begin to become formed around the law. That's where the freedom really rises out of. I begin to long to do the things God would have me do because my affections are changing. And, you, and this happens because of, of something very important when we think about the law, and that is this. It's contained in relationship. God did not say in Exodus, we're now finished with that book, here's a new book, and it's just Ten Commandments, and deliver them out. The Ten Commandments are in the context of story and in the context of relationship. And last week we looked at Exodus 19. And just to remind you what God said, you yourselves, he's talking to the Israelites, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Intimacy. Two verses later he says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is saying, I have made you into a people. And I've brought you near. And I'm going to change you from the inside out. Is that your view of the law? Or is it this thing that kind of condemns you? So now we are moving to point three. The law, point two, is freedom. Now point three, how do we use it? What do we do with that? If you're sitting here today thinking, man, that sounds really good. I wish I had that view of the law. But I don't. Why? The answer we often would have to come back to is we have a wrong understanding of the order in which the law was given. Every other religion out there would say, here's your order. Deity tells you how to obey. Then you obey, and then they may accept you. But the order of the law in the Old Testament, the order it's always been, God, Yahweh, says, I love you. You are mine. I've rescued you against your will. I mean, the Israelites weren't waiting around. They didn't even know Moses was coming for them. When I say against your will, I mean, they weren't looking for it. They weren't waiting for it. They wanted it, but it wasn't even something they were planning. God rescues them. And then he says, oh, and by the way, here's how to live with freedom. It comes after the rescue. But I think all of us, to some degree, reverse that order. There's a quote on the front of the worship guide I'm going to read now from John Murray. You're welcome to look as I read it. He says this, The simple truth is that if law is conceived of as contributing in the least degree towards our acceptance with God and our justification by Him. I'm going to say that again. The simple truth is that if law is conceived of contributing in any way to our salvation, right, our acceptance, our justification, then the gospel of grace is a nullity. It's not a word we use every day. It's useless. It's non-existent. He goes on. And the issue is so sharply and incisively drawn that if we were to... Where am I? Sorry. That if we rely in any respect upon compliance with the law for our acceptance with God, the Christian will 
speaking, then Christ will profit us nothing. Let me unpack that. Here's the bad news. The good news is if you're a Christian, let's start with that, you've been rescued. The law is no longer a threat. You are now defined by Jesus, right? The bad news is because of all of our orphan natures, our flesh nature, we have this tendency to continue to measure ourselves by the law. Um, I'm going to use another diet example. I've actually tried to eat really healthy at times, and when I'm in those modes, like one French fry, I feel like I just can, I'm condemned. I was not supposed to have even one French fry. Later, once I've given that diet up, order the cheese fries, please, and the Dr. Pepper or whatever, and I don't feel any guilt at all. What changed? Right? The nature of French fries did not change. My digestive system is exactly the same. What changed was simply my apprehension of the power of the rule that I set for myself. Okay? So when we use laws in that way, like the nuclear reactor, it's seeping in and it's destroying us. Does that make sense? Now we do this in many profound ways, but the bottom line is, are you feeling condemned in your life because of something you've done or not done? If so, you have a wrong view of the law. Um, in Psalm 19, we read it before, the psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect. But what does he say next? Reviving the soul. Now that word, reviving the soul, when I've read that all my life, I've thought, you know, making you kind of happier. But the actual meaning is bringing back to life. Shaking, you know, helping revive from being distraught. In other words, when the psalmist is looking at the law and meditating on it, He's not skipping with glee because of his ability to keep the law, but he's recognizing that even in his own inability, the law is still perfect. Does that make sense? So somehow the gospel, and I think Shane did a great job with this in the confession of sin. Sometimes we need to record that part and just play it for 30 minutes. Thank you. Um, the law is beautiful if we get the law and the gospel together. And that the only way you're going to like the law, and here's the downside, is if you're willing to be kicked in the detox by the law all the time. Because it's going to happen. And yes, I just said that in the sermon. The law can't destroy you. It can't kick you out of heaven. But it can reveal to you that you have more to go. Your guitar playing isn't perfect. It's not quite where it needs to be. So here's another illustration. You're a quarterback. But you've been riding the bench. And all of a sudden, you have an opportunity to start. And you get in the game... What are you thinking? What's really on your mind? If you're me, you're thinking, I don't want to blow this. If I blow this, I'll be benched and maybe even kicked off the team. This is my one shot. But that's not going to actually motivate me to play well. I'm going to be just timid, right? I, I remember going on ski trips where people would say, I didn't fall all day long. I envisioned them skiing like this the whole time. I'm like, that's not fun. In the same way as a quarterback, you need to be able to have the freedom to try the pass, to, to scramble for the, you know, whatever. I'm not a quarterback. I don't know all the lingo. Then there's Peyton Manning. Now, right now for this part of the illustration, forget this season. Peyton Manning, from the day he showed up at the Colts until, say, last season, never was going to be benched no matter what. I mean, he could throw, he could have shown up in a clown costume and thrown five interceptions. He's still the guy. And here's Peyton Manning playing effortlessly and he throws an interception, and what happens? He, you don't see him throwing his helmet. 
going up to the receiver, blaming him so the camera can kind of catch it. He's on the sideline looking at photos. Have you ever noticed this? Just staring at all the things he did wrong. And the look on his face is not shame or guilt. It's simply, that's not going to happen again. And he's trying to study what he missed or maybe what someone else missed to make them better. But what's even more amazing about Peyton Manning, in my opinion, is after the touchdown drive, you pan back to the sideline. He's doing it again. He's just sitting there staring at the photographs. He's looking at the law to get better because he knows he's accepted. His goal is no longer to be the starting quarterback, to get into the team. It's done. His goal now is to win, to be the best he can be. And until you get to a view of the law that says it can no longer condemn you, you are in. You are free. The law can no longer condemn you. Then it can let loose in your life. Luther, in his, in his um, intro to Galatians, he wrote the commentary to Galatians. I think it was 10 years later he wrote, it was getting re-released, so he wrote the introduction at that point, a longer introduction. And that introduction to Galatians, in addition to the commentary, and I know Eddie's using it for the Sunday school class as well, has changed lives. I believe John Wesley or Charles, I forget which, was actually converted by reading Luther's intro to Galatians. And I won't tell you all the things it says, but one of the keys that stands out is Luther says this, if he's speaking to the law, he said, law, you are free to correct my body, to help my mannerisms, to help my conduct, but you have no place in my conscience. And I think every one of us here has reversed that. For us, the law seeps into our conscience. And we begin to evaluate ourselves and our standing. And maybe it's not with God. Maybe in your mind it's like, no, no, I know God loves me, but everybody else, I'm worried about what they think of me. Remember the first law, the way you view man, the way you view God? If you're afraid of what everyone thinks of you, you're really afraid of what God thinks of you. You just place that on people. You've lowered God to something that doesn't matter, and you've made people your God, but you're still afraid of acceptability. Until you know that Jesus loves you, until that's the only identity that matters, all of the conduct you do is useless, and it's actually deadly. The law actually becomes very dangerous. And let me say this. God is not, not caring about the law because it's not deadly. Remember the nuclear example? It is very deadly. And it's very condemning. And the reason the Christian is no longer condemned by it is because someone else received the deadliness of it. Jesus. Jesus God did not just descend at Sinai and say we can only get this close he came in human form and he fulfilled every requirement of the law so that you and I in receiving Christ could be completely and utterly without blemish. But if that's true of us, the response will then be to want to follow the Lord and to offer our lives to him as living sacrifices if we believe that's true. So is that your view of the law? Is it freeing to you? How do you apply that? We have Ten weeks to apply it. But I will apply it this way this morning. Luther, in a book on prayer, Luther, who I think gets the gospel, right? We would all say he believes the gospel. Here's what he says about the Ten Commandments. He's giving, and I'm getting this a quote from Tim Keller's book on prayer, which I highly recommend. So if you do nothing else, write that down and, and buy it and read it. 
But one of the things that Keller does is he spends a lot of time on meditation in that book, which I really like. And he's saying, if you look at Luther and Calvin and Augustine and other great figures from Christian, Christian history, they didn't just read their Bible, which is amazing, and then pray, which is amazing, but they meditated. They spent time chewing. And, and, and for the law to have any use, we have to do this. So I want you to look at what Luther does with the first commandment. He says, I am, he, he quotes it, I am the Lord your God, the prologue. And then he jumps to, you shall have no other gods before me. And here's Luther's words. Here I earnestly consider that my heart must not build upon anything else or trust in any other thing, be it wealth, prestige, wisdom, might, piety, or anything else. So the first thing Luther does in his meditation is he looks at the law and just tries to understand the concept. Okay? Secondly, I give thanks for his infinite compassion by which he has come to me in such a fatherly way and unasked, he's talking about God, God who is unasked, unbidden, and, un, and I'm unmerited, has offered to be my God to care for me and to be my comfort, guardian, and help, and strength. He gets the gospel. I read the law and go, oh, I'm so condemned. I don't even want to look at it. I want to go do something completely different. He says, thank you that this is true. Then he says, third, I confess for having fearfully provoked his wrath by countless acts of idolatry, and he repents. Now think about that. He's able in, in one posture to go, thank you, and I'm, I'm guilty. Only the gospel allows that. Only in the gospel can we say at one and the same time, I'm guilty, and thank you. And then he says, fourth, I pray. Preserve my heart, he's praying to God, so that I shall never again become forgetful and ungrateful, that I may never seek after other gods or other consolation on earth or in any creature, but cling truly and solely to thee, my only God. If you are looking at the law, but you're not looking at the gospel, you're deforming the law. But if you're looking at the gospel, thank you, Jesus, that you fulfilled it. Thank you that I'm in you. But you don't even look at the law. Then you're deforming the gospel as well. Like Shane had said earlier, again, thank you. Best quote of the sermon from the Confession of Sin. They have to come together. They have to be together. And Luther and his prayer is a perfect example. So I commend to you meditating on the law as we go through these ten commandments knowing that you are loved by God, knowing that you are cherished by Him, but equally knowing that our sin is anathema to Him. Not us, the sin. And when we can see those two things come together, we can actually say, Lord, I want to follow You. But like the guitar player, we're not going to ever do the law right or perfect, but it will be beautiful. And we will be growing. And like Jesus in Matthew 5, which the children are memorizing this Scripture, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But just before that, he said, you are a city on a hill. And in Exodus, he looked at the Israelites and he says, you guys are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are not just doing this so that we feel better about ourselves. That's not the point at all. That would be wrong. That would be sinful. But we are pursuing the law because it not only frees us, but it shines light on the world around us who is in desperation. They don't know their left hand from their right. And they need the church to once again, in humility, show the gospel and show holy living. But not out of arrogance, not out of legalism, but out of a true sense 
of the presence of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we love to either drift toward law or grace, which deforms both. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, you would help us to see the beauty of the gospel in such a way that you did not come and save us, that we would just have this false sense of freedom, that we can do whatever we want and lay around, but Lord, that we would have a passion to run after you, not to earn your favor, but because you already love us. Let that be our motivation. And I pray like Luther, Lord, we would meditate with our lives laid open before you, seeking change. Lord, not that we would look better to our, our, our neighbor or to friends or even to you, but because we want to reflect you to the world. Lord, we want those around us to know you, Jesus, and to know your love and your mercy and your beauty. Father, will you make Grace Presbyterian Church a place that is attractive to the world around us, not because of judgmentalness or licentiousness, but because of you, Jesus, being found here. In your name we pray.